Isn't that a great expression of faith and confidence? This is my Father's world. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we think again today regarding this matter of our church in the 90s. Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. I recently read of plans to construct a building in Japan that would reach nearly a mile high, 5,000 feet into the air. Apparently, technology exists now to do that. The problem is with the cost. They're not sure how to finance such a structure. I will only say that I hope the architect is a college graduate to try something like that. Christians are participating, however, in a construction project that is far more important than that. We are building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the eternal habitation of God that we are constructing. Its importance, its scope, its cost, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is far beyond anything that a mortal could imagine. That which we are building comes out of the very heart and the mind of God himself. We are doing our part in the project. Our contribution to it is the work that we are doing in our local church. The building that we're talking about is not made with steel and glass, with cement. But our building is made of human beings, the lives of people, you and me and others. God in his grace has chosen that kind of construction material. It's material that is flawed and ruined and corrupted, broken until he reaches down by grace and makes it whole. And in his salvation, makes us material that's worth building with as far as he is concerned. And he begins putting us into place as living stones in this holy temple of God. What we are doing in our local church is a part of this construction project that has been going on for 2,000 years and will continue until the Lord comes. It is exciting to be a part of something like that. And so we come to the question, what kind of a church are we putting together at Grace Church Roseville? How effectively are we doing our work in this part of the age in our part of this living temple? Are we doing work that is one day going to pass God's final examination when the building is done? For these Sundays of January and maybe a Sunday or two into February, I want to speak 
to you from my heart about the kind of church I believe God wants us to be in the decade of the 90s. Last Sunday we talked about two points that are foundational. They're just basic. They're points you have a hard time disagreeing with. We may get to some other kinds of points later. But I remind you that last week we talked about our church in the 90s as being the kind of a church where the Word of God is faithfully taught with relevance to real life and where it is obeyed by the people, by all of us. The Apostle Paul laid that kind of a foundation in the church in Corinth. In the second chapter of this book, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So Paul says, I proclaim God's word to you, and that is the, the basis for your church. And now he is writing this letter to exhort them to go on to obey it. You see, it's not just enough for it to be taught. And then we want our church in the 90s to be the kind of a church noted for loving acceptance of hurting and needy people, while at the same time practicing and pursuing holiness. We want our hearts to be wide open to receive those who are in need of the Savior. And wherever they may be in their walk in this world, <clears throat> whatever the condition of their mind or body or soul in their sin, we want our hearts to be open to them, to receive them, to embrace them with the love of Jesus Christ, while at the same time ourselves pursuing holiness, not compromising God's standards of righteousness. The Corinthians had a little problem there, as we saw last week. <clears throat> and that's one reason Paul wrote this letter to them. Now today, as we continue this theme, I hope that God will allow us, in the 90s, to be the kind of a church where members allow for differences of opinion and conviction on disputed issues. Let me repeat that. <clears throat> I want us to be the kind of a church where members <clears throat> allow for differences of opinion and conviction on disputed issues. <clears throat> Pardon me. Now, of course, right is right and wrong is wrong. There's no question about that. And the Word of God is very clear on issues about what is right and wrong, but not every issue. There are some matters where the Word does not clearly speak, leaving room for legitimate difference of conviction within the conscience of individual believers. There are some churches that uh, prefer to establish rules and laws in these areas that are, shall we say, gray, and I mean legitimately gray, where the word is not clear or it's silent. I suppose in one sense it's easier to do that because then you can demand clear adherence. Everybody looks the same. There's conformity in the church. 
The problem with that is that it easily becomes legalistic and it never produces maturity in God's people. It arrests the maturing process. So if we're going to build something for God's eternal habitation, let's let it grow like it needs to and not arrest the growth. And I think if we follow what I'm talking about, we'll see growth. Growth in us individually, in our relationship to Jesus Christ. There are several important principles that Paul lays out right here in 1 Corinthians that apply in determining these issues that are disputed among Christians as to what is proper or what is improper. Some may feel they have liberty to do certain things, while others feel in their conscience that those things are wrong. How do we know what we ought to do personally? Well, let's just look quickly at these principles. I do not want to dwell on them. I can't afford that this morning, lest this series go into summer. So let's just name them. 1 Corinthians 6.12 is the first place we ought to look. Paul is saying to this group of believers, Now, Corinthians, grow up. Don't be carnal anymore. And to help them grow up, he says this, All things are lawful for me, 1 Corinthians 6.12, but not all things are profitable. There were some Corinthians who were boasting in their newfound liberty in Jesus Christ, and, and they said, because of grace, all things are lawful to me. They felt that way about it. I can do whatever I want to do. But Paul says, now wait a minute. It's true that grace liberates you, but there's something else to consider. It's the principle of expediency. He says here, is it profitable? Is it helpful? Is there an advantage in doing it? Will it accomplish a good end? So you have freedom to participate or to do that. But is there really profit in it? Is there advantage in it for you, for others? The principle of expediency. The last part of the verse, again, he quotes some of them, apparently, who were saying, All things are lawful for me. But Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And so the second principle that needs to be considered is the principle of enslavement. So I may do this, or I may participate in it, but is it something that will in some way addict me? Will I become enslaved by this? Obviously, if I would, then I need to say no to that, even though I may feel liberty in Jesus Christ for it. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul comes back to the same theme. Verse 23. All things are lawful, he says, but not all things are profitable. He repeats the first principle. Then he says, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And so we find a third principle. It is the principle of edification. So I have liberty in my conscience to do this. How will it affect others? Will it build them up? Or will it cause them to stumble? 
If a person has a different conviction and they're weaker than I in the faith, will I, by using my liberty, cause them to stumble in their faith? If so, then I need to decline my liberty, to put limits on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is written about that whole theme. The whole chapter deals with it. Paul says, so you have liberty, that's good, but let your liberty be tempered by love for others that you don't hurt them along the way of the pilgrimage. And then in verse 31, he gives to us another principle. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The fourth principle is the principle of exaltation. Will God be exalted in what I am doing? Will it glorify Him? Can I glorify God in this activity? How might it affect my body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So you see, these are the principles that need to be brought to mind as we think of disputed issues, where there are legitimate differences of opinion among believers. Now we need to allow for those differences, I believe. But these principles must be used by each of us in coming to the place of our own understanding about them. Now there are certain social issues that always come to mind when these kinds of things are talked about. Things like dancing, smoking, social drinking, theater attendance. But I think we need to go beyond those things that we always think of and consider some other issues that might be in some ways, even more relevant to our day. Because frankly, some of those former issues, I think, have become more clearly black and white in recent days and years because of uh, the work of science and uncovering the effects of alcohol and tobacco, for example, in our bodies. But let's think of other kinds of issues. For example, what kind of a car should I buy? Well, I hear some Christians say, you should never buy any car new. And if you're a Christian, you ought to have a simple lifestyle. The car should be an old car. Now, with most of us, that's no problem. (laughs) But then there are others who say, hey, you know, God has blessed me. Uh, I can buy a Mercedes. And... uh, The value of that car will be retained for years. It is a a wiser investment for me to make. I can lay down the money up front and the car won't decline in value. And so you see there's the possibility of judging one another about those sorts of things. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says buy a second-hand chariot. (laughs) Nor does it talk about luxury editions of them. I mean, the Bible doesn't speak about that, but it seems to me these principles might have some effect in helping us come to a personal decision about it. What about issues like, uh, should I hunt and kill animals just for the sport of it? (laughs) Talk about something like this in Minnesota? Well, there are Christians who have very strong opinions about that on both sides. I think that's an issue we need to struggle with. 
But we need to allow for a room of difference on that and not judge one another. Or let's go to a different realm. How far do I go in protesting social or moral policies in this country? I have some friends who have said to me that if I don't lay my body down in front of an abortion clinic and get arrested, I don't have convictions about abortion. And I mean they feel that way. I don't feel that way. That's no place to put a temple of the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, in jail. I mean, there may be an occasion for it, but in my conviction, I've reasoned that out a different way. I have different convictions about that. I don't support that kind of protest on that particular issue at this particular time. But I want to leave room for my brothers who feel differently about it, or my sisters who feel differently about it. My point is this, that I want us to be the kind of a church where on these sorts of issues where the Bible may not be clear, where it's not black and white, that we allow for differences of opinion and conviction. I believe that the more mature a fellowship becomes, the more that it will be characterized by the kind of loving accommodation to the opinion of others that I'm talking about. And I'm talking about doubtful matters now. I think Augustine was correct when he said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. That's a good principle to live by. I believe that largely we are this kind of a church now, but I want to say this just to underscore it. Because it's very easy in the day in which we are living to slide one way or the other. It's hard to be balanced. Have you ever noticed that? It's easy to slide into compromise and accommodation on everything, so there are no standards. On the other hand, it's easy to fall prey to legalism because there are frankly some very simple answers there. Just to put down rules for everything, right or wrong, and then nobody has to struggle with it. Nobody has to make up their own mind. And I think both are wrong on disputed issues. In the 90s, I want to see our church be the kind of a church that works to keep its basic ministry simple and uncomplicated while meeting the essential needs of its members. Now, why do I make a statement like this? Because there's a tendency for the opposite to happen. Churches get to be like bureaucracies of the government. We start something here, and then that's perpetuated forever, and we start something there, and the same thing happens. After a while, we begin to fill up the week with so many expectations of everybody that there's no time and no energy left to do anything else. It's very easy for us in our church to say and to think in this way. Well, if you're going to be a faithful member of Grace Church Roseville, then of course you'll want to be in worship every Sunday morning. You'll want to be in small church every Sunday morning. 
And by the way, you would also consider teaching in Sunday school or helping in the nursery on Sunday morning in a third hour. Then, of course, you need to be back at uh, 6 o'clock in the evening for an evening service. And you may even want to consider coming a little early and taking a build class. Oh, by the way, we have a wonderful men's Bible study on Monday night. Men all over St. Paul come. Men's Bible study fellowship. Super. And for you ladies, Thursday morning we've got this thing going. It's just tremendous meeting a lot of women's needs. And hey, Wednesday night is an important night at Grace Church. That's when we do our children's and family thing. We have a wanna that night in our youth ministry. And, oh, we need lots of help for that. Could you come and help us with it? And oh, by the way, choir meets that night too. And we need tenors. <laughs> right? Especially this morning with some of them sick. And, oh, yes, I forgot one other thing. Maybe a couple. Uh, we really think that you ought to be involved in your neighborhood. I mean, everybody ought to be reaching out to their neighbors in some way, you know, Bible study or evangelistic. And then uh, your family, you've got to spend quality time with your family. And after a while, what happens? You begin to get like John Benham. You just pull your hair out. You don't know which way to turn. And so I ask myself as the pastor of this fine church, what in the world are we asking people to do? Life hasn't gotten any simpler in the 90s. I believe that we need to work to simplify our ministry. And to keep it as uncomplicated as we possibly can and yet focus on the essential needs that everybody, every one of us has, so that those are met. I think those needs can be boiled down to just three. That's simple. I believe that the need of every Christian is, number one, to worship God. Now, we do that individually, but I'm talking now publicly. Being together in a body, in a congregation, a corporate group, worshiping God. That is essential. We must never allow worship to become less than a priority in our lives. Number two, relationship. Now, I'm not thinking here just about friendships with anybody, but I'm thinking about significant, meaningful relationships with other believers. The kinds of relationships that will be mutually stimulating so that we can encourage and admonish, perhaps rebuke one another. It takes relationship to do that. All of us need relationship. It is not enough to come to worship and just walk out as quickly as possible, get in the car and go home and think we've done our Christian thing. All of us need to be involved in relationship. Now that is really the one that we have to think hard about in our church because we have umpteen opportunities for relationship and I don't know if one of them is bad. If, if it were, we wouldn't be doing it. But somehow we've got to think through all of the things we're doing to build relationship, simplify that if possible, and then expect people to say, I'll take that one. Or if they have time, 
Maybe there will be another one or another one. But not to expect everybody to be doing umpteen different things. I could elaborate on that in May next week, but let me go on. The third essential need is ministry. None of us will mature, we will never grow up, unless we have some kind of an outflow in our lives, giving to others. It may be inside the walls of the church, within the program of the church, or it may be outside the walls of the church. <clears throat> it may be both in some cases. But the fact is that God has gifted every one of us to serve Jesus Christ in the church and or in the world with spiritual gifts. We are to employ those gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit and thus serve our Lord and serve others. Ministry is essential. If a Christian is going to be a maturing Christian, he must look after those three essentials in his life. They are not three good things. They are three absolute essentials for every one of us. You check them off in your own life. How are you doing? Is worship what it ought to be? <clears throat> Do you have meaningful relationship with other believers? Ministry? How are you serving Jesus Christ? It's important to ask that question. My point is this, that I want us to be the kind of a church that works to keep our ministry simple and uncomplicated, while at the same time seeking to meet these essential needs that all of us have. Finally, as we think of our church, finally for this morning, as we think of our church in the 90s, I'd like us to be the kind of a church where everyone joyfully participates in the financial support of the total ministry of the church. That has always been God's plan for his people in Old Testament times and in New Testament times. Whether you go to the Old Testament or to the New, you find biblical support, number one, for the financial support of those called of God to give full time to ministry. In the Old Testament, it was true of the Levites, the priestly class of Israel, that family. In the New Testament, it's true of those that the Holy Spirit calls to be full time in their use of their gifts in serving the church. You find support in both the Old and the New Testament for benevolent ministry. Giving to those who are poor, to those who have needs. There is support, by the way, for each of these right in 1 Corinthians. The first one is 1 Corinthians 9. Maybe it would be good to look at that since it's just a page or two away. We'll just look at verse 14. It says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now that verse comes out of a context that deals with this whole thing of supporting the Lord's workers. Benevolent ministry, that's what 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 is all about. Concerning the collection for the saints, 
Paul writes, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. The concern in this particular text, the point of it was a benevolent offering being taken for the poor believers in persecution, in the under persecution in Jerusalem. And then we see it in several places of the New Testament, as well as the Old, the support for outreach. But this is especially true in the New Testament. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians to thank them for their generous expression once and then again of support for his apostolic ministry, support financially. He writes to the Romans and says to them in the 14th chapter, I believe it is, that uh, he was going to go to Spain and, uh, excuse me, I think it's the 15th chapter. He was going to go to Spain, and he said, I'm going to go there by way of you so that you can help me on my way. What do you think he had in mind? A pat on the back? No, he was thinking undoubtedly of an offering, financial support from them, so that as he went on this journey preaching the gospel, in outreach, missionary work, that the church would support him as it ought to do. And then there's another aspect of this whole thing when we talk about the total ministry of the church. And it was true in the Old Testament as well, and that is the cost of just doing ministry in our culture. Now in the Old Testament involved the upkeep of the tabernacle and the temple and, and all that was involved there. Specific regulations laid down for that. In the New Testament, we don't see a lot about that because that whole thing hadn't developed yet in the first century when the New Testament was written. But I think it is a clear principle of the word that there is cost in doing ministry in any culture. And that is the responsibility of God's people to, to pay that cost together for all of us to share in it. The cost of administration in a church in our culture. Uh, when you have several pastors on a staff, or for that matter, even one pastor, a secretary is extremely helpful, if not essential. Else the, the pastor is going to be involved in doing all kinds of things that are not the best use of his time and his gifts. I can just say as one pastor that if it weren't for a secretary, you would probably find me in a corner somewhere in a fetal position. I mean, secretaries are essential. What would we do without janitors, custodians who clean our buildings for us? They do a fabulous job here. Oh, the movement of chairs. You just can't believe how many chairs have to be set up and taken down and moved every week. The, 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 look at the carpet that has to be cleaned in a place like this. Not to speak of just the upkeep and the maintenance and the grounds in the summertime. I mean, that's a part of doing ministry if we're going to live in Roseville, Minnesota, and use this as a base of operations. God expects us, all of us, to have a part in that. That's why I'm glad that we have what we call a unified budget, where my gift, whatever it is, in the month, if it's $500 a month, it all goes to the total ministry of the church. Now, there are some people that like to be able to designate, and that's kind of a human thing, I suppose. I remember one pastor saying to a group of us pastors at a conference, 
Uh, and this was 15 years ago. In their church, they took in weekly offerings of somewhere between fifty dollars and $80,000 every week. But he said he was the only pastor of a church that he knew of that took in offerings like that that couldn't pay its light bill. Because everybody was designating their money to this or that or the other thing. You see. If it comes down to it, if I have a hundred dollars to give and I uh, want to designate it, am I going to designate it to uh, a ministry where I can see the results or where I know the person? Or am I going to designate it to pay the light bill for the church? Well, I can tell you what the answer to that is. I'm going to give it where I can see the result and where I know that person. Let somebody else pay the light bill. Now, let's suppose we all took that attitude. Well, we turn the lights off next Sunday, I guess. But you see the point, don't you? The problem that we run up against really is is twofold, I think. It arises out of human nature. It is, number one, the desire to keep rather than to give. That's true of all of us. We would rather keep than to give. And the second problem is that uh, we would rather control than to trust. I would rather control where my money goes. So I know where that $250 is going and where that $500 is going than to trust that in the wisdom of the body and voting on the budget that it's already been decided and designated the best places for it to go. Or to trust somebody else to, to divvy it out for me. It is human nature to say, I would rather control that than to trust it to somebody else. But the fact is that if we're going to do ministry effectively in the 90s, we need to be the kind of a church that, where everybody joyfully participates in the financial support of the total ministry. I have a friend that I went to school with who now works for one of the fine Jewish missions in our country. He wrote an article um, regarding the text of Malachi 3 that warns the Old Testament people of God not to rob God. And they said, well, how have we robbed thee, Lord? And God said, in your tithes and your offerings. And as he was writing about that and bringing some application into the New Testament, he said, Christians present many reasons and excuses for not giving to the Lord. Some have been taught improperly or not at all concerning what God requires in the area of giving. Some do not give out of greed and a desire to spend all their money on self-gratification. Some believe that they cannot afford to give. They have a young family to support. They're in debt, saving for retirement, on a pension, or just too poor. Still others believe that by giving their lives to full-time ministry, they're not required to give financially. But it goes on to say the Scripture teaches that everyone... This text in 1 Corinthians 16 is, is his proof text... Everyone is required to give to the Lord's work. Those holding any of the above positions must restructure their giving according to biblical principles. And he rightly goes on to say, the Christian cannot afford not to give. By robbing God of what is due him, the individual is actually robbing himself and his family of many personal blessings. 
Forgiving pays earthly and heavenly dividends. How the Christian handles money is the true barometer, writes David Levy, of his spiritual life. Now, those words, I think, are right on target. And words that all of us need to hear. And not just need to hear, we need to heed and obey. We've seen some real improvement in our church in this area in the last couple of years. Our administrator did a computer analysis of our giving patterns, of those who give by envelope. That's the only way that we can trace any patterns. <clears throat> and we found that percentage-wise, many more people now are participating in giving than have in past years. That's a very healthy thing. We need to see that continue and be obedient to give all of what God tells us to give. Another pastor friend of mine who pastors a, a large Lutheran church in southern Florida sends me his bulletin every week. And on the front page of it, he had a little story that I thought was kind of interesting and fits right in with this theme. It says, years ago, a man knelt with his pastor as he committed himself to God to tithe. As you know, that means 10% of the income. His first week's pay was $10, and the tithe was $1. As he grew older, he became more prosperous. His tithe became $7.50 a week, and then $10. He moved to another city, and his tithe was $100 a week, and then $200, and later $500. He sent his pastor a wire, Come to see me. The pastor arrived at the man's beautiful home. They had a good time talking over old times. Finally, the man came to the point. You remember that promise I made years ago to tithe? Yes. How can I get released from it? When I made that promise, I had to give only a dollar, but now it's $500. I cannot afford to give away that kind of money. Well, the old pastor looked at his friend and said, I'm afraid we cannot get a release from the promise. But there is one thing we can do. We can kneel and ask God to shrink your income so that you can afford to give a dollar once again. <laughs> you know, Jesus had a lot to say about money. And it's a subject that we ought not to be embarrassed to talk about, uh, despite some of the scandals and uh, extremes that we hear in the media regarding money. The Bible has a lot to say about it. One of the key texts is Luke chapter 16. We don't have time this morning to look at the whole context, but I want to pick out the, the key pinnacle verse of it all in Luke 16 and verse 9. Jesus says this, and what strange words these seem like from Jesus. Make friends for yourselves, he says, by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. What's he talking about? Money. That when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, if you look at that in the context and understand what Jesus is saying, what he's really saying is, you be shrewd in the stewardship of your money, like this man I just told you about, he was saying in the parable. It says, be shrewd in the use of your money, so that by means of it, though it is the mammon of unrighteousness, you make friends. 
so that when it, your money, fails, when is that? The end of life? That's when it's all over. It doesn't make, how, make any difference how much we've amassed or how poor we are. It's done at that point. That when it fails, they, who are they? The friends that you've made, may receive you into eternal dwellings. Who are these friends? I'll tell you who they are. Our Lord was talking about people who are one to Jesus Christ. Who are built up in the faith as a result, in part, of our faithful financial stewardship. Because we support the total ministry of our church, people are one to Christ in the area. People are built up in the ministry of our church. We send missionaries overseas. We have this project. We do that. And people are one to Christ. Listen, someday there is going to be, when you arrive in heaven, those of you who have been faithful in giving, there are going to be some dear people from Taliabu, Indonesia, who are going to stand there at the golden staircase. If you come up the stairways, you may take the elevator. They're going to be standing there, and they're going to say, Welcome to heaven, and thank you for giving to God. Because of that, I'm here. You sent a missionary. And therefore, I didn't die and go to hell. But I heard about Jesus. Thank you. Forgiving to God. I don't know about you, but I think that's exciting. And that's why all of us can be joyfully participants in giving to God. Not just tipping God, not just trying to buy God off, but giving to God. Father, I pray that you will apply what we've talked about this morning to our lives and May each one of us grow as a result of it.